Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is my old friend Eric Eisen. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Eric and I have kind of known each other, uh, first at least uh, saw each other in, in the summer of 1970 in Poland Spring, Maine, at a course that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was uh, conducting. And Eric was a filmmaker at that time, and he was shooting a documentary called The Main Purpose. Uh, Marshy liked puns. And <laughs> he went on to become a filmmaker in the TM movement, and Eric and I taught together on all sorts of projects and teaching teams in various places, Detroit, Chicago, Boston, and um, you know, on various overseas adventures. Um, so these days, Eric is a, a oneness meditation or oneness teacher. He'll, he'll explain the details, but I just wanted to give you a real quick overview of our connection and then we will retrace our steps and um, go into lots of details. And I, I think you're going to find this interesting because Eric is an interesting guy. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you give a presentation the other night and you briefly recapped your spiritual odyssey um, back to the days of when you were a Harvard student and yeah. you first saw a picture, poster of Maharishi up on, on some campus building. So let's, let's take it from there and then see where we go. All right. Life story in a capsule here. Yeah. I was uh, a Harvard student, undergraduate, and uh, had just been becoming interested in conversations with people about God and spirituality. So starting to have some interest. I, I really hadn't pursued it in any direction, but I felt drawn to it. And I saw a poster with uh, this Indian master who was coming to speak at Harvard. And I thought, well, that's cool. Let's go check this out. I went to hear him, and uh, I kind of, the minute he walked through the door, I kind of uh, fell in love with him. You know, I, I just don't remember when he walked through the door, my mind just kept going over and over and over. That's the real thing. That's the real thing. And I could just sort of feel this very powerful energy uh, of his consciousness and awareness. And he gave a great talk, which was centered all about his transcendental meditation technique. So I learned the technique, and just from the day of my initiation, I started having really wonderful experiences, inner experiences. I'm kind of visual, so a lot of visual. I would see things, and and they're more than visual. They always had certain energy or feeling to them, which gave them a reality more than just a, a cartoon or a dream. Like you know? what, for example? Well, I remember uh, one time I was meditating and my, my, my mantra took the form of a goddess, which is what the TM mantras are. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but that's, okay. what, that's what they are. <laughs> no, but, um, well, yeah, they're bija mantras. Which, they're bija mantras of, right. the, of, of, the, of the Divine Mothers. Bija means seed, seed mm -hmm. mantras. And she was taking me by the hand and walking me through these beautiful uh, grassy meadows and plains and forests and things like that. And I could feel myself being there as well as just seeing it. It was like that. And I felt this very, very powerful, blissful energy. You know, it's hard to put these things in concepts because they're experiences, so they die when you put them in words. But I hope many of you know what I mean, that there's a differentiation between like a fantasy and a real spiritual experience. The real spiritual experience is just you know it when it's true because of the energy and the joy that's associated with it. I felt all that, and, it, and interestingly that it turned out to be kind of the story of my life. You know, I stayed in the TM movement for 
you know, almost 40 years after that and spent almost 10 years in Switzerland where I had many a walk on beautiful grass-covered Swiss meadows and uh, with wildflowers and beautiful trees. Spent a year teaching TM in Sri Lanka and the beautiful hill, hill country where the tea plantations grow. Uh, just, you know, many adventures. Of course, there was also the slums of Detroit and, and, and a couple of years in downtown Chicago. Uh, you know. So it was, it was mixed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there were, there were many adventures, but, uh, you know, it was sort of like a prediction of what was going to come. So that's just one example. And I remember when I was initiated in TM, I saw visually, and it was an experience at the same time I was seeing it, that my whole life I'd been as if trapped in the surface tension of the ocean, trapped in the, on the surface of the water. All of a sudden, with the initiation, as soon as I started the mantra, I could see the surface tension break and I settled down deep into the ocean. You know, just those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And there were many other sort of peak experiences along the way. I think one of the most important things in my life, uh, I was on a long meditation course. Well, I'll back up a little bit. So, as a filmmaker, I used to travel with Maharishi. On my first trip to India, I was sent ahead of Maharshi early to deliver some materials for a conference that was going on, and then I was going to meet him to do my filming. Since I was like two weeks early, I went up to Maharshi's ashram in Rishikesh to spend the extra time. When I was up there, I lost my train of thought. Well, you got there two weeks early because you had to deliver some materials, and, yeah, and you went up to Rishikesh yeah, to, to, to buy time until Maharishi came. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the experience was I was oh. leading up to. It wasn't so much an experience, so I was walking on the banks of the Ganges in Rishikesh, and I came to a bookstall for the Gita Press, which I knew was like a spiritual book publishing company. I was looking at the different books, and I, at that time I was pretty green. I hadn't had a lot of education in the Vedic tradition. This was 1974, and I'd been with Marshi a few years, but you know, I just didn't know that much about the Vedic literature and the names of different things. So I was looking at the books and didn't really know what to get or what would be interesting. And the bookseller, I, you know, he, it was just, you know, you're in Rishikesh, the atmosphere there is so profound. You know, he just had this intuition. He picked up these big three-volume books of the, uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam, and he hands it to me and says, this is for you, sir. And he was right, it was. You know, I read those books. It gave me a, a whole deeper level of understanding of everything Maharshi had been teaching and saying. I somehow saw the truth behind uh, what was he was saying. Maharshi was gear, gearing his teaching towards Westerners very much and trying to keep it palatable to them. And he didn't want to sort of reveal the Vedic deeper roots and truths behind it. You know, he made us wear ties and suits and everything. We were, we were like an elaborate masquerade, <laughs> uh, you know, masquerading that we weren't really a Vedic tradition or, you know, or a Vedic cult, you know. So we were always trying to cover it up and pretend we were teaching, uh, you know, relaxation techniques that would, you know, help you practically, which they would, you know. They, it was good for the mind, good for the body, uh, good for everything, very helpful in life. And I was experiencing a lot of growth in those years. But, uh, you know, reading the Bhagavatam was like a, a major turning point for me in the level of understanding I got from, of what was really in the teaching and what was really behind it. You've got to tell us why that was so, right? I mean, what was it about the Bhagavatam that was such a big breakthrough for you? 
but that's basically it. I felt like, you know, um, I understood what Marshi was saying. I, I wish I could remember specific teachings. Not as, you know, it'd be was better it to sort give of, a I mean, the Srimad Bhagavatam is about Lord Krishna, isn't it? The Srimad Bhagavatam is the story of the ten incarnations of Vishnu. Of Vishnu. So there are one or two or three chapters about each of the incarnations. Mm -hmm. And so along the way, when they tell the stories, it brings out many of the truths of consciousness and the deeper levels of consciousness, right. levels of consciousness, um, the importance of connecting with the divine and expanding. And I felt like a lot of that was, you know, behind the masquerade of the Western geared thinking and, and speaking that, uh, that we had in the TM movement. I see. So, I mean, when we were talking about we were pretty much limiting our conversation to deep breath and scientific research and That's right. you know simple analogies and right. so on. Yeah. And you, you kind of realized at that point when you read that book that there was this whole vast kind of uh, cosmic wisdom behind the whole thing. That's it right. wasn't just a simple little technique. That's right, yeah. Not just, not just the technique, but you know, I'd been, I'd been around Marshi for almost three or four years at that point and heard many lectures. Marshi, uh, you know, one of the ways he blessed people was by talking. You know, you, he gave long lectures for hours on end, and uh, you know, great knowledge, great teaching. You know, I'd been hearing that, listening to it, and as a filmmaker, I'd been you know looking at it and listening to it over and over on my editing machines mm -hmm. too. You know, where it kind of penetrated. Yeah. And but you know, he was always talking. I wish I could remember specific examples, but you know, he'd be talking about unity consciousness, cosmic consciousness, and he would be defining it. And there were many, you know, really good juicy things he would say along the way. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't getting it fully mm -hmm. until I read that book, mm -hmm. how it connected. You know, I kept reading the book and it was like, oh, that's what he's talking about. Huh. Oh, that's what he really means. That's what this is really all about. Mm. It was like that over and over and over again. So all I can remember is my reaction. Yeah. And I apologize to the viewers. I, don't, I know it's much juicier to hear the specific examples, but I don't really remember them. I just remember the transition it gave to me. And then perhaps even more important, I just fell in love with Lord Krishna. Mm. Uh, you know, reading the stories about him, I, I just was so inspired. And I just thought, you know, this is incredible. So where we were, so uh, in about two years after I read those books, I was on a long meditation course. And uh, one day I just went into this phenomenal bliss and I found myself sitting at the feet of Lord Krishna in his heaven. He was on his throne. You know, there were all his buddies around him, you know, and, and, and uh, I'll never forget the scene. You know, everything was gold, shades of gold. I don't know how they do it, but it just you could still differentiate sort of shadow and degrees. But, you know, the couch was gold, his whole body was gold, everything, his hair was gold, his crown was gold, everything, all the beings around him were gold. And he just sat and looked at me and was giving me like this really strong blessing through his eyes. And then the experience changed, and I started experiencing him inside my body, mm. where he was like working on the different chakras, opening things up, blessing me, just making a lot of like surgeries and alterations on, on, on the energetic level or whatever. I have no idea what he was doing. Mm -hmm. you know? And it was kind of a, and after that, my experiences really changed. You know, I sort of got this medical, he, I think he gave me a gift of a, a medical intuitive ability, which I've been able to use to earn a living most of my life. Just, it was a big transformation. Hmm. Now, some people who listen to that are going to think, whoa, that's really cool, far out. Others are going to think, it's just this imaginary, fanciful thing. All that really matters is non-duality. 
that which comes and goes isn't real. You know, only only that which is perpetual is real. Right. And so, you know, he, this guy has a, a uh, you know vivid imagination. You know, but there's nothing more to it than that. Yeah. So, what would you say to them? Well, uh, you know, physically, my health changed, mm -hmm. and I developed you know abilities and powers that I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, this, something something real the medical intuitive ability I could see inside the body. Yeah. When I took a person's pulse, when I learned Ayurveda, we're going to have a demonstration you know, of that. In a while. And uh, um, you know, so and my whole experience has deepened. But you know, your question has huge implications for I think the greater teaching of my life and the stories of my life because. You know, I stayed in the TM movement for many years and had many of these wonderful experiences. They were states. They weren't imagination. You know, these realms live. You know, you can say, you can go into the non-dual teaching and say there's nothing but non-duality, nothing but oneness, nothing but Brahman, nothing but the void, or whatever you want to call it. And ultimately, you're right. And ultimately, that's true. But the fact is, you're in a body. You're here in a body. You have to deal with that. And... <laughs> In, and, you know, the trees are out there, the dogs are here, you know, the cats are there, the house is here. You got to fix your roof. You got to chop wood, carry water, as the Buddhist teacher said. You're dealing with that relative reality at the same time you may know the truth. What my experience was and what ultimately caused me to leave the TM movement in the world was that all these experiences were states. They came and they went. And ultimately, that gave me great suffering. You know, after this glorious day with Lord Krishna, the next day, I was back to being pretty much me. You know, <laughs> I had some more abilities, but I had my, my same faults, and they weren't leaving. And, uh, you know, I really struggled with my faults and was just told over and over, all you have to do is meditate and do your program every day, and you're going to become enlightened and you're going to change and become this great person and glorious being and all your dreams are going to come true. It didn't happen for me and I don't think there are many for whom it happened. I don't believe that a system can give it to you. Well, I do know a number of people in the TM movement who... Yeah, you, you would know them more than yeah, I would. Yeah, whom I would say have definitely undergone a shift on a relative level. They may still have their faults. I think everyone does on a relative level. Yeah, yeah. but. But there's been a shift, and, and pure consciousness, if we want to call it that, is perpetual. It's, it's a solid right, right. foundation of their experience, of their life, 24-7. Yeah. So there are some, yeah. but it didn't work for me. And most of the people I was around as a monk in the Maharishi's Purusha group, uh, it wasn't happening for them. Right. You know? And most of the people I know in the movement here in Fairfield, in other words, it didn't happen for them. Yeah. And it's not. Because I don't believe there is such a thing as one-size-fits-all for anything. You know, I think the minute you establish a system, you're going into a great limitation. I heard Marshy say himself, um, you know, my years around him, I heard had many phenomenal experiences. I have the greatest respect for him. Ultimately, I, I had to go. Because, what did he say? Well, he said that everything was actually grace. So even though he was teaching us that the system will do it, that you meditate and it's a system, the mantra takes you to the transcendent, you're going to transcend and mm -hmm. you're going to become enlightened because you're going to dissolve all your stress. And he taught it all very systematically. But then he also said it was really all about grace, that ultimately your grace with the divine that would grant you awakening. There's nothing you could do 
that was actually going to do it. It wasn't what you were doing, you're meditating. It was a matter of exposing yourself to grace, of getting into the flow of the grace. Let's that, dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, to my mind, that applies on two levels, basically. One is the meditation process itself from day one right. is a matter of grace. You know, because you're not doing it. You have the intention to sit down and practice, but the more you are actually interjecting some sort of doership into the practice, the less effective it is. That's right, yeah. Right, so Which you're is a big kind problem of like... for most people. Yeah, so if, if you're doing it correctly, you're doing it innocently and without any sort of effort or control or manipulation, and grace conducts the process, if we want to use the word grace. Then another way of looking at it is, you know, that saying, God helps those who help themselves, right. or there's a, this Zen saying, you know, that enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you accident-prone. Right. Um, you do all this stuff, and you kind of, you submit or subject yourself to this transformation, yeah. which is really grace doing the, the transforming, but you bring yourself to a state of preparedness or readiness where uh, enlightenment or awakening yeah. is much more likely to happen because yeah. you're not full of crud. You know, you've sort of you prepared the vehicle to make it a, yeah. a fit vessel. You don't pour new wine into old wineskins. You know, you prepare a new wineskin. Yeah. I would agree with that to some extent, but, you know, um, right now we're talking about my experience, yeah. and, my, and, and it's not theory. For me, it didn't work. It stopped working. After like 35, 40 years in the movement, I realized I was suffering. My major faults were not healing or going away. No effort or no beautiful experience ever seemed to last or give me any real life in pure consciousness, mm -hmm. like connection to the, to the Absolute. It wasn't happening. Although in, in retrospect, although it didn't happen, do you feel like oh, that was in any sense a waste of time, or do you feel like that was all preparatory and I feel it had its own value? I feel it had tremendous value. I feel yeah. it was preparatory. So I don't regret it. Right. And in fact, um, looking back on it all, the day doesn't go by when I'm not extremely grateful to Maharshi for what right. I got from it. And in mm -hmm. fact, I'm, I think I'm more grateful to him for the years I had around him and the total smashing of my conditioning that occurred at that time because he had no conditioning and he just sort of smashed your boundaries, your beliefs, your, your, your ego, uh, you know, everything was just laid waste around him. Anything <laughs> relative had no value real to him. And then all the years on Purusha, the different projects we had, you know, he would have us do all these insane things that, uh, that put tremendous pressure on you. You know, I just remember the natural law party when we were running candidates and I was in the, the group, the publicity group where I have to call up these cynical reporters all the time and tell them, you know, oh, I'm running a wacko physicist for president. Would you like to write an article about him? <laughs> you know, that's one of the reasons I got into computers was uh, I could just absorb myself in this screen and not have to deal with people. Because I'm good with dealing with people, but in the TM movement, you had to sort of deal with people who didn't want to deal with you. That's right. Yeah. And I hated that. Yeah. <laughs> I hated asking for money to support yeah, me yeah, and all to that all stuff. That, yeah. And so it's like I just got lost in my little computer world. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's one of the things I'm grateful for. You know, if I, if I sum it up, I just think it broke so many boundaries. It made me very bold and fearless mm. in life, uh, you know, in what I do. You know, I just, it's just water, everything sort of water off a duck's back. If someone thinks I'm crazy and wacko, it's... Fine, I'm crazy and wacko. You know, you can, you know, good. You know, enjoy your your beliefs, your perceptions, whatever. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you um, that sort of relates to what we've just been saying is, you, you know, you and I have known each other really well over the years, and and we've we both 
you know, aware of the phases that we each went through where we really were kind of crazy on long courses and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had a period where you had to be watched because you were going to climb out your window and go in town and do God knows what. And, uh, you know, I was like, you had an eating problem or something. Yeah, so I would go go and eat donuts or something. (laughs) No, better than that. Ice cream sundaes in in, in Switzerland or, uh, you know, just go out for a good good meal in a a Swiss restaurant. Doesn't sound like there's anything wrong with that, but... (laughs) Well, we weren't supposed to do that. Uh-huh. The, the nature of it was I just was supposed to be meditating and I just couldn't take that austerity. So there was like a tremendous pressure and, and stress release built up inside that mm-hmm. drove me to do those things. It was just like a, a tremendous drive. Hmm. And then afterwards I would feel very guilty and things right. like that. <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, that was... Well, people are going to listen to this and they're going to think, well, geez, I mean, the, the problem was not with you, it was with the routine. There's no harm in going out and having a good meal. <laughs> um, but I mean, and you know me, and you know how kooky I've been at times in my life. I just wonder sometimes whether going through a kind of a dark night of the soul in the form of you get turned inside out, and all all right, kind right. of your idiosyncrasies and your obsession obsessions right. and your all kinds of stuff just come to the surface, and to the observer, you may appear to be quite odd and quite right. maladjusted you right, know, with right, normal right, right. life. But it's kind of a minefield you have to go through and you eventually kind of come out the other side. Yeah, It's worth mentioning, I guess, because yeah. it might be something people yeah. are going through. Well, that's very, that's very true. And to me, okay, so this brings up, uh, you know, we're jumping back and forth between the present and the last years in the oneness movement and TM. For me, all those types of behaviors we're talking about mm-hmm. are basically healings of the stuff that you have we have inside us it, it has to come out if you're on a spiritual path like um, Meister Eckhart said many thousands hundreds of years ago you know spiritual growth is a process of subtraction not addition the veils come off you release your charges your addictions things like that they have to come out to me the system the meditating even though it takes you deep and you relax and something comes out and there's a certain amount of grace in there that's describing it, it doesn't teach you to deal with these behaviors, these addictions, a lot of this negativity that you have in the way that will really heal it. It doesn't come out. What works for me is the non-dual teaching. What the non-dual teachers teach, which is what we teach in the oneness movement, in addition to the the very powerful grace that's transmitted through uh, the diksha and the oneness meditation, there's many ways that we receive grace in that movement because the, the divine wants to give it. But the teaching is what most of the non-dual teachers teach, which is you have to accept who you are if you want to heal it. You have to learn to stay with the negativity that's coming out. In oneness, they, they used to teach us, be bad. Don't act bad, be bad. If you're angry, let the anger swallow you. Let yourself be completely absorbed in that energy. And what's happening when that does is, it's like Marshy's feeling the body, but it's much more elaborated. So, and Marshy's feeling the body was, why don't you just explain that? Okay, uh, Marshy's feeling the body, you know, he taught all the teachers uh, a technique called the, the checking points, the 30 points of checking. One of those points is called like overpowering thoughts in meditation, in which he tells you, and that overpowering thoughts in meditation, that teaching, I love it because it's like the sutra form of this much more elaborated teaching of experiencing what is and healing it. And what, I just want to add that this, this is relevant to people. Most of the people listening to this won't have 
practice TM, but this is relevant to everybody really because it's kind of a fundamental principle, I think, that um, many teachers reflect upon. And right. That's what you're probably going to say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so the, the teaching, the way Marshy elaborated in very succinct form was he said, whatever you're experiencing, so say something makes you angry, someone says something or does something to you that hurts you and makes you angry, it's not about that. It's a trigger. You might be with someone who doesn't have the anger on that particular issue inside them, and the same thing happens, and they're not triggered. They don't get angry. They don't respond. They don't react. You've reacted like that because you have the seed in you. So the teaching is that those seeds are your karmas. Those are impressions, memories from past lives, from childhood, from your ancestors. And what, what I see in my medical intuitive work is that all health problems, psycho-emotional problems, originate in these spiritual blockages. They have a, like an, they're like energy knots and they're in the nadi system. Nadis are like energy nerves that connect the material with pure consciousness. It's the means, the mechanism through which the pure energy of consciousness, the field, converts itself into a body or into a house or whatever. You know, it has to transform itself. To illustrate the point you just made, so if two people are driving along in separate cars and somebody cuts them both off, one person may get angry and the other just take it in stride That's right. because the one person is, has sort of seeds of impressions. Their makeup is such. Yeah. Maybe it's just their temperament. Yeah. They're more of a pitta right. kind of a personality. They're going to react. The other person isn't. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's because of the temperament. I would say it's because they have some incomplete experience, some knot of memory in them that's getting triggered. So getting cut off was a blessing because this dormant blockage in their system got released and the energy is coming out. So this could be something of any form. It could be something that makes you jealous, angry, lustful. So the, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians are blessing the heck out of each other. That's right. Yeah, in a, in a way they are. But, but in a way they are. But they don't know how to deal with it. And what Marshy brings out is that it's not about the experience that triggered you. The seed energy gets released. It floods you with the energy of the experience that caused it. So you get flooded with anger or whatever it might be. And your mind is this, like, being, you know, it has its own identity, a very uh, totally illusory identity, which causes it to place your current experience of the car cutting you off as an explanation for why you're angry. This could be anything. You know, someone says something to you, you're hurt, and it's all because of your sense of ego and mind that you explain it that way. But it's just, it's triggered you, it's blessed you in a way. And, and the, so the teaching, so Marshi's teaching, which again is much more elaborated by other teachers like Adyashanti, Eckhart Tolle, Francis Lucille is a teacher I like, Papaji in India, Ramesh Balsakar, Nizagadara, all the non-dual teachers teach something like this where you drop the story. So obviously you're driving the car, you can't do this, but ideally you would stop, close your eyes, go inside, and just be with your anger. Be angry without trying to resist it or analyze it. And this is a challenge because our whole conditioning is you have to do something. You don't get anywhere without doing some work, without doing something. One Ching little point to throw nothing. in is that the, the way Marshy phrased it was that the mind doesn't like to have a feeling the without in the, on the, in the abstract without assigning some kind of rationale to it. So, and, and he also talked about this during meditation itself, uh, not just cars cutting people off, but you might be sitting meditating and some feeling comes up due to some deep impression yeah. that's being released. 
and you attach it to something. You begin to feel negative toward a friend, yeah. or you feel like you want to leave the, the program, or yeah. you, you feel like you need to climb out the window and go get a big meal. But it's really not about that. It's just that the mind is assigning something to... That's what to, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah that's right. I just want yeah. to kind of reiterate it. And so when you stay on that level of the mind assigning it, you're in the mind, you're in the clouds, you get nowhere. You're never going to heal it. You, what you have to do is come back to the physical feeling of the anger, of the, you know, the jealousy, of the lust, you know, of the food craving, whatever it is, and just let it over you. In, in oneness, we call it the art of suffering, because it, it may be a strong fear, and it doesn't feel good. But you let it swallow you. We say most of the people in the world are like hanging from a, a light fixture in the ceiling, while the tiger of their, of their negativity is waiting to devour them. And the only way you heal it is to let go and let the tiger eat you. You let the energy of the experience completely take you over, and you just experience it, and you feel it. Now, you know, it's very... The reason that works is because who are you? You think you're the mind or the ego? You think you're this person? No, you are being. You are pure consciousness. You are the field of energy. There's nothing but God. There's nothing but that energy. And so your attention, when the mind is not operating, when you're not doing anything, is pure consciousness. And it can dissolve anything. It can dissolve these blockages that are in you. So when you can connect the knot of karma that's inside you about the anger, the jealousy, the fear, whatever it is, with awareness without getting caught up in the story, without letting the mind assign a meaning to it. Just that experience allows you to complete the experience. In oneness we say these charges, these stresses are the result of experiences that were not complete. And so they left a knot of incompleteness in you. So something hurt you, made you angry, and you couldn't accept it. You couldn't let it complete itself. You held it. You know, and so that could be, you know, or maybe you were in a war and you saw everyone wiped out, and you were in tremendous fear and anger, and you stored all that because you couldn't accept it. It was too painful, and you stored it. And now it's coming out, and when you start to think about it and ascribe it to what's going, what triggered it in your current life, you're in the mind, and you get nowhere. Whereas this teaching allows you to, to dissolve it, to heal it, just with your attention, by doing nothing. You know. So let's say, to take an extreme example, let's say that you are um, one of the Sandy Hook parents. And um, for those who are not aware of it, watching around the world, that was a town in Connecticut where a guy went into a school and shot up a bunch of uh, five and six-year-olds yeah, um, with an automatic weapon. Let's say you had gone through the oneness program or, or whatever spiritual practices you had gone through, and it had brought you to a point where you had worked out all these charges, resolved them. How do you suppose that such a parent would react to their child being killed as compared to the ordinary person? Uh, they, you know, they would experience grief and sorrow and anger and all those things, and they would just pass right through them. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about someone who's awakened here. Awakened, yeah. when you're awakened, it's not a state anymore. It doesn't come and go. Mm -hmm. You're living a level of pure consciousness where the mind is separate from you. So the mind, the emotions, the ego, they exist. They're tools. You cannot function in a body without a mind and an ego and an intellect. You know, otherwise you're going to walk into walls, whatever. You, know, you, don't, you, know, you distinguish you, you, your mouth from your ear. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you have to 
be able to perceive these things, but it's all gotten out of perspective in this age of ignorance in Kali Yuga, where the mind and the sense of separation and fear have dominated. The fight and flight response is dominant. Uh, all these different outcomes of, of Kali Yuga, of this age of ignorance that we're hopefully coming out of now, have taken over. I always love this quote from, uh, I don't remember the exact words, Ananda Moima, who was a, a female avatar in the last century. By avatar, I mean someone who's like born enlightened in a very high state and has some mission in life, some definite purpose. So it's like a, an amazing soul that took a human body for some purpose. And she said that, that the divine plan is that the divine sits in all our hearts and guides our lives so that everything can work out perfectly because only the divine intelligence can organize everything without a flaw. Mm -hmm. Whereas the mind will just make a mess out of it. The human mind can't do it. You can't comprehend all the variables. Only the cosmic computer can. Only the divine can. But what happened in Kali Yuga is that the mind dominated and suppressed the heart and took over. And so the mind made a royal mess out of the world to the point where we're ready to blow ourselves up. We're destroying our planet just so, so that we can make money, you know, or, or kill people and bomb them, you know. Uh, that the heart has to come back to the fore mm -hmm. because that's where the divine lives in all of us and can organize our lives so that everything flows seamlessly. So, so are you saying that somehow the, one, the TM movement wasn't doing that for you, but the oneness movement yeah, the, 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 picked the, up where TM the, left the, off. The teaching wasn't elaborated enough that, that you have to face yourself. You have to like face your addictions, sit with them, be them, accept them. It was, was more was, the emphasis on transcending it was them. All the, it was just meditate twice a day and everything's going to take care yeah, of itself. Just root, do your program. Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you said, there are some people yeah. that worked, it worked for them. But maybe you know? not as many as there should be after 40 years of practice. Well, that's my point. Yeah. You know, and I think the ones who got awakened probably could have got awakened by eating pizza, you know, yeah. like that. They probably know? did that too. They probably did that too. <laughs> but, you, know, um, you know, not take away. They're great techniques and they're very helpful yeah. and, uh, you know, and they give deep relaxation and... They're a great stress release in the world, but, you know, we were totally consumed with enlightenment, with awakening. That was our purpose, and it wasn't delivering that on any kind of a, a scale that I could see in my life. Mm -hmm. Now, what's very interesting is I was talking about how Marshy in the checking point described that in not very elaborated form, but very perfect. He really summed it up, and he actually told a number of groups in the movement um, whom he must have felt were able to hear it, to apply that teaching from those checking points all the time. But he never made it movement-wide. He never told my, our monks group, our male monks group, he never told us that. He told the female monks group that, the Mother Divine program. Mm -hmm. I've had this conversation with a number of people who were on different teacher training courses where he told them to apply that point. All and so, practically speaking, if you were telling somebody to apply that all the time, what would you tell them exactly? Yeah, which I do all the time in my work. Okay. I tell, you know, because these stresses are at the root of your, of your, your health problems. So, you're talking to thousands of people right now? Hold yeah. So Explain to them how to do okay. that Okay. <laughs> so, it's kind of what I was talking about before. Basically, it, you have to learn to do nothing. So, something triggers you. Say, so, your ideal situation is you're at home and... Uh, maybe you get a phone call and someone says something which hurts you. So you feel a lot of, or oh, let's say you're at home and all of a sudden you start worrying about your money, that you're going to starve someday, you're going to be out of your house. So what's, what is that? that? 
That's the mind making up a story. Do you know the future? Can you control the future? There's always something to worry about. Your mind is going to manufacture this issue and that issue, this fantasy, that fantasy. It creates scenarios all the time. That's its job because it's trying to keep you from connecting with your true nature, which is pure consciousness, which is the divine. It's like it has its own existence and it wants to protect it. And so when something triggers you, you're at home and you start worrying, some, you, you start feeling some fear, I'm, I'm going to run out of money, I can't retire, whatever. The teaching is that that fear has nothing to do with your current economic situation. It's something you're holding inside you from the past. It could be from your childhood, from when you were in the womb, it could be from a past life, it could be from something that happened anytime during your life, it could be from your ancestral line. So you can't know what it's really all about. It's like endless trying to figure it out. You don't have to know. Instead, close your eyes, or you don't have to close your eyes, and let yourself drown in your fear. It's not about the story of that you're going to run out of the money and starve and be homeless and die on the street. It's about your fear. It's about the knot of fear that you're holding inside you, in your energetic nervous system. And when you can let yourself sink into that and experience the fear without a story, it will heal. It will dissolve. And I guarantee you, try this. And usually after a minute or two, you get a wave of bliss, a wave of joy. Why? Because that fear, as I said earlier in this, is like a knot in your energetic system that connects the divine with the material. And when that knot dissolves, you've opened up another channel to the divine. You open up an, and the nature of the divine is joy, it's bliss. So you get like a wave of joy. Now the deeper, more powerful ones, they come back over and over, they have many levels, and you may not feel a wave of joy, uh, and you may just say, well, okay, I'm, I'm still in fear and I'm, you know, I have to go to work. Believe me, you stay with this and you find that you are transforming, that your behaviors, and that's what frustrated me in Marshy's movement was, you know, we weren't, that teaching wasn't elaborated, it wasn't given to us, and I never stood there face-to-face -face and experience my suffering. You were suffering, but you were kind of... Escaping, sweeping yeah. under the carpet. Right, you were, tennis, you were never kind of turning and facing it full on. That's right, and right. I, I was always trying to do something. Something would come up and I would like suppress it. I'd say, no, that's not good, that's not right thinking. You're, I would judge it. Mm -hmm. That's what everyone does, that's what we all do. That's the conditioning. Most people are out there and you know, you're, you're wrestling with yourself all the time. You have inner conflict, you have an inner dialogue going on. All that is, is taking place. And of course, people who take drugs and stuff, they're just trying to mute it or, yeah, or yeah. numb it. Yeah. And, uh, or, or not only drugs, but you know, doing all kinds of things to distract themselves from it. And you're just saying, stop and just face it full on. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I don't know what percentage, but I think most of the world's economy is built on escapism. Yeah. People are watching television, they're reading escapist books, they're drinking, they're eating, you know, taking drugs, they're eating food, they're fighting, they, there's elaborate stories which are all about escaping. I mean, the world economy is, is built on it. So, I mean, you, in a way, you just alluded to your own experience because you had a financial setback recently in which you had invested a lot of money with some guy that turned out not to be trustworthy, and that was kind of an unfortunate turn of events. You dealt with it by really just feeling it fully, and it passed through rather quickly. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just accept it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it was harder for me, but in the oneness movement, the permanent awakened condition is being given on a massive scale right now Mm -hmm. to people at whatever level they're at. Mm. You don't have to become some great Ramakrishna or some great Maharishi or some great Yogananda to be awakened. Mm -hmm. You can awaken at a very low level of consciousness. And I'm defining awakening as a declutching of the mind where you become free of the mind, where it doesn't control you anymore, that you're separate from it. You don't see yourself as the mind, whereas before you identify yourself as these thoughts, as this person. Whereas what the mind is doing is it's creating a personality out of totally disconnected array of old memories from, from past lives, things like that, that aren't really connected. And so your mind creates this whole idea of a person, of a personality, whereas uh, in oneness we say you're a crowd, you're not a person. When you have that disconnect, these things pass through you very quickly. You know, you become free of the mind. So, like you say, if if something tragic happens, uh, you're going to feel grief and sorrow, and it's going to pass through you. You lose all your money like I did, it passes through and you just continue, you know, just at some point... It, it doesn't hang on and eat you up anymore. Mm. Whereas before, it ate you up. When and it didn't help you any in terms of your financial situation. It didn't help bring the money back to be no, eaten up. No, it didn't. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But in fact, it might bring the money back sooner to be not eaten up and to be able to just you know, yeah. roll with it and keep on. That's right. Yeah. 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 A lot of people use the term awakening these days. And, and you know, I hear people all the time saying, well, I, I, when I had my awakening or I woke or this or that. And I'm always a little bit not you know uncertain as to exactly what they're referring to because there doesn't seem to be a universally agreed upon definition of the term mm-hmm. and in my opinion based on my experience both within myself and with other people mm-hmm. there seem to be you know many 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 stages of awakening awakening Very after beautiful. awakening right. after awakening mm-hmm. and i don't know that those stages ever end although at a certain point there's that which is yeah. which essentially you are mm-hmm. is it's recognized and it's never going to change yeah. or get improved upon mm-hmm. but your ability to reflect it or express it your your ability to be an instrument through which that can shine in the world no end to re, to the refinement of that Beautiful, so yeah, yeah so that's correct uh, it's one of the things i love about the teaching in in the oneness movement is phenomenal i mean he basically says Awakening is on a scale of 1 to 100. Uh, and he says enlightenment isn't until you hit 70. So you can have a 1 awakening, a you, 2 awakening. And you do. Yeah. And you do. In India, on these different courses that we have uh, mm-hmm. at the Oneness University, the deepening course, everybody who goes there gets awakened. By, the, the by whatever course, this definition By, by is, this yeah. definition of a declutching of the mind. So okay. they may be awakened at a 1 or 2. Now, are there degrees of declutching? I mean, is it at a 100% severance, uh, complete declutching? Or are, are, you know, are you declutched to a certain degree relative to the way you used to be? You are declutched, but um, it's a very important question. They use the analogy there is that, is that you're speeding along the freeway normally with everything going at like 180 miles an hour. And when you awaken, the engine switches off. And it's going to, it can take a long time before the car, before the car stops coasting mm-hmm. and gets to a stop where you start to really experience the games of the mind and the ego as secondary, where you're onto it, where you have so much silence, the mind doesn't trick you anymore mm-hmm. into its games. 
So by your definition, a person could be awakened, but they could still be tricked. Yeah, for some time. And there seems like there would be degrees of trickery. You know, some things which would just sort of trip you up for a minute, yeah. and other things which would become all-consuming for a while. That's right, yeah. So if it's and, really all-consuming, why? You, how could you call that person awakened? Isn't it just sort of a, you've lowered the bar quite a bit? Uh, no, I would say they're awakened because what happens after you're awakened is you're able to, is this process I've been describing for healing by doing nothing, by experiencing, becomes automatic. I would say awakening is a process of extreme growth, of very rapid growth. I would say that is perhaps one of the major gifts of awakening that you happen. So even if you awaken at one, whatever declutching happens allows you to move into this experience of purification constantly. So you may, you, you're going to get overwhelmed and the deeper, stronger drives are going to grip you to some extent as time goes on. So what's been the joy to me is, is you know, when I left uh, the TM movement, because I was stuck, you know, the things weren't moving. After awakening, everything's moving really fast. Mm -hmm. So it's not that I'm this great person or anything like that, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. who I am, but <laughs> yeah, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but what's really satisfying to someone, you know, I gave my whole life for evolution. I gave my life to Marsh and my whole adult life. And it's because I wanted enlightenment, I wanted growth, and I wanted to serve and bring something to the world. That was great, no regrets. It got me to this point where I found oneness. Oneness delivered this awakening which uncorked everything. So when you're not attached, when the mind is detached, is declutched, the karmas release very rapidly. And a lot of people when they awake go through dramas and you know they're forming little you know, groups and stuff to help each other understand it. Because here's the difference. You don't have the inner conflict anymore. When your stuff comes out, it's gangbusters. Your energies are releasing. Somehow you just stop resisting it. So on the outside, it may look the same, but inside you don't have the resistance or the judgment. You're not like trying to suppress it, trying to judge it and say, this is bad. I shouldn't do this. I'm a bad person. I have to change it. You accept it. So you just stop all that manipulation. Yeah, and, 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 and when you do that, you stop suffering. That's mm -hmm. the greatest joy. You know, I suffer like crazy. And now, even when my worst crap comes out, I don't suffer. Because I don't have an inner conflict or dialogue about it. I guess it's you're officially no longer Jewish, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good definition of Jewish. Yeah. At least East Coast Jewish. Yeah. How does oneness accomplish this for people? Grace. Okay, so... Who's grace? What grace? Uh, so, beautiful. That's what a great question. So, you know, those of you who are watching, you can believe it or not. You may be skeptical or not, but my experience at Amin Bhagavan, the founders of the Oneness mm -hmm. Movement, is they are avatars, uh, you know, very high beings who have come at this time of the phase transition to be one of the ways through which the divine is creating a golden age by delivering this awakening to many people. Mm -hmm. And they call it a brain surgery. They call it, you know, where the divine actually works on you. And they give you, we have two main avenues of connecting people to the divine energy. One is called the oneness blessing or oneness diksha, where the hands are placed light on the head, lightly on the head. Mm -hmm. The other is uh, the oneness meditation, where the oneness meditator is initiated so that they can be completely consumed by Amabhagavan. Or by the divine, you know, I'm a oneness meditator and sometimes I'm consumed by Christ. 
Sometimes I'm consumed by Krishna. Sometimes I'm consumed by, by Durga. Sometimes I'm consumed by Amabhagavan. What is the experience of being consumed by this or that? Extreme bliss. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the only difference, you know, they're just faces of the divine. The divine mm-hmm. is that one pure energy. And I just happen to know who's coming through. Like if it's a divine mother, I'll feel more nurturing love uh, in my experience. Mm-hmm. And usually he or she will show themselves visually to me. Mm-hmm. And they might say something to me like that, you know. I was a little bit off track, but I'll, I'll backtrack to like a, one of the sort of main stories of my life. Like when I was seven years old, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was being gripped by this sort of tractor beam, you know, like a Star Trek tractor beam of, of intense energy. And it was so powerful I could hear it. The room was humming. And then this godlike voice says, my son, get out of bed, go out the door, and you'll see God in Jesus Christ. So anyway, I'm this little Jewish kid whose parents have raised me since World War II to think that every Christian hates us and wants to kill us, you know, and so I had that conditioning. So I didn't go. I curled up in fear. Jesus Christ, what's going to happen? So I didn't go. So after I became uh, a TM meditator and started opening up to spiritual reality, you know, I spent my whole life regretting that I didn't go and wondering what would have happened. So later, you know, I had a private interview with, with Sri Bhagavan, and I figured this is my one chance to ask someone who can tell me what would have happened. And he said, you would have been awakened by the grace of that experience, and by now you would be in unity consciousness. So I was like, damn. <laughs> uh, it would have been a different life. But, uh, you know, I wasn't ready for it, so it just wasn't the way it was written. You know, it didn't happen. So you're talking about the two ways so, in which there's the, right, well, the, really one that's, there's the diksha and the oneness meditation. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really got backtracked. Should I finish the story? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were Okay. Finished. So yeah. I'll finish the story. So that happened then as I found out that. So the next stage of this is uh, after that, I read these beautiful books about Anastasia, this uh, divine, uh, Russian divine mother avatar. She's mm-hmm. a, a, a phenomenal avatar alive now, living in Siberia year round without a house in the woods. You know. hmm. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You know. <laughs> Doing phenomenal work. And these books are just so inspiring and beautiful. And there was one scene in there where she had just been through something that was very taxing to her body. And this golden ball manifests in the middle of the woods. And out of it steps this beautiful young being made of blue light. A light that was like about a 10-year-old boy. And somehow that image just really captured me. I just sort of fell in love with it. With that being. I just thought, oh, it's so beautiful. It really moved me. It caught my heart. Other places in that book, when people say, who are you? She says, I'm the sister of Jesus. So anyway, uh, about a few months after that, I was in India on a course, and I was asking one of the guides who will conduct the courses there, who are in very beautiful levels of consciousness. These people really live the reality of what they teach. Very inspiring and beautiful to be around them. I was asking one of these guides about it, and she said, when the divine comes, Oh, I left out of stage. So a few months after reading that, this little boy Blue came out of nowhere and goes into my heart and stays there. And I thought, well, that's cool. You know, and I'm sort of wondering, who are you and why have you come? So I asked her about it and she said, when the divine comes to you like that, unsought, unlooked for, the divine has a purpose. So you need to keep talking to your little boy Blue and asking him, who are you and why have you come? So a few months after that, I, I was, during a oneness meditation, uh, I had that question in mind for all those months, those different questions. My little boy, boy Blue sort of showed himself in the oneness meditation and, and said, I came to bless through you. 
And that's what the oneness meditation is. It's a powerful divine energy that just takes the person over and blesses them and blesses the, the, the people who experience it. And then the next night, the rest of my questions were answered. He came back again and he said, I'm Jesus. I took this form so that I wouldn't scare you this time. <laughs> so that sort of completed the experience. Yeah. I was talking about the, the, the different forms through which divine energy is given to people to help them in their growth, the different form of divine grace. One is this hands-on oneness meditation, and the other is the uh, hands-on blessing. The other is the oneness meditation that's given through the eyes. Now, the oneness movement also has a very major devotional component, uh, which you may also find in, with Amaji and others, where if you go to a picture or an image of the divine, and in oneness, we're not really attached to that. It has to be Ama Bhagavan. They say, go to your divine, put your hands up like a half inch away from the picture, close your eyes and ask for a blessing. In oneness, it happens. If I go up to a picture of any divine and I do that with reverence, I feel I, I get a strong rush of, of bliss, of energy that helps to transform me. The components for very rapid spiritual growth in, in oneness that's worked for me is this combination of grace and non-resistance, non-doing, in the face of my deepest faults, and my deepest struggles, and my deepest addictions. Is that acceptance, is letting the tiger of my fear eat me. You know, and the story of uh, the, the personal awakening for me was uh, the, all the one, the one uh, Amma Bhagavan wanted the oneness meditators to be awakened, and they wanted to guarantee that. So they brought us each over to India. They determined sort of astrologically or in some mystical way actually what an auspicious day for each one of us that would be particularly conducive to awakening. How many of you were there? There, are, there are, No, there are only about 60, 70 in the world. Oneness meditators. Oneness meditators, the ones who to who, give through who, the eyes. Is what you did which is what I night. did the other night. Okay. Yeah, who okay. give it through the eyes, mm -hmm. yeah. And we we underwent you know an, an, an a special training. initiation. No training at all. Oh. We don't do anything. Initiation. It's an initiation. It's like a hookup. Okay. And I'll uh, ask you some questions about that when, yeah, you, when so, you finish this. So, so anyway, uh, you know they wanted us to be awakened, mm -hmm. and so they brought us to India for, over this auspicious date. And then, so like two days before your date, they lock you in a in a cave, like in a dark room. There's no light, mm -hmm. nothing. It's just you. There's a bathroom and a bed. And nothing else, and you're not. A, you can't take anything in there with you, except you know a change of clothes or whatever. And uh, they give you a towel, and, and you have your bathroom with shower and toilet and everything you need. Give you all the water you can drink, your choice of sweetened or unsweetened lemonade, mm -hmm. and one piece of fruit a day. They mm -hmm. come and visit you, you know, and give you a piece of fruit. I was very shocked by my experience when I went in there because with Marshy's training, as like I say. One of the things I'm very grateful to him for is the sort of boldness and fearlessness that I got about what I was doing because of all the totally insane, wacko things he made us do. So I had to constantly interface with a judgmental, very ignorant set of values in the world uh, with something that was completely foreign to them and that you were having to stand up and represent. And so that created a lot of fearlessness. So when that door locked, I commenced on a three-day panic attack where I was just in terror and fear 
the whole time. And you probably thought it was going to be a piece of cake because you could just sit there and meditate. I, yeah, and exactly. I thought it was going to be a piece of cake. I yeah. did. And especially because I had talked to about 10 or 15 other oneness meditators who had been there for their date. Mm -hmm. And one girl said, uh, this Brazilian girl said, I slept the whole time. Mm -hmm. And they basically all said, uh, you know, it was, it was easy, you know, no mm -hmm. big deal. So I thought, well, okay. But uh, not me. And I had yeah. like, I was just consumed with fear. <laughs> Day and night, couldn't sleep. Day and night. I got a few hours sleep here right. and there. You, you wake know. up and be fearful again. Yeah, you know. Yeah. You know, there were only a few things that got me through it. One is that I was experiencing this, what, what in oneness we call this brain surgery, this shifting, uh, a, a neurobiological shift in the nervous system that mm -hmm. the divine gives you. So that's why oneness, the oneness movement is delivering awakening, because the divine wants to awaken you. The divine is omnipresent, so you put yourself in the situation in you know, receiving the diksha or the oneness meditation, are going on these courses in India, and the divine works on you because uh, the divine is you. It doesn't need to, right. you know, have a formal introduction. You know, <laughs> you know, it can give you what you need. So I was experiencing the whole three days, you know, radical shifts, which actually felt great. It was, so I'm in terror, and there's this blissful feeling in my brain or my heart chakra or whatever, different parts of the body. And figure, well, okay, something's going on. I got to stick it, stick this out. Can't go, you know. They leave you a key in case you can't take it. So, no, and I contemplated escape. running, running out on the streets, going screaming, "I can't make it on!" <laughs> but I didn't. I'm in there. And the other thing that uh, that really helped me was uh, somehow the divine gave me visions of how the fears from my past life were implanted in me in this body. You know, I saw that my parents were in terror at the end of World War II, being Jewish, when I was conceived and in, in the womb. The war wasn't over yet. Hitler was going to win the war and, and we'd all be killed. Mm. And uh, and I also saw that you know I was an accident and they didn't really want me and they never really did. And you know, that was my karma. I don't blame them. I don't believe in victims. Everything is, you know, what you have coming to you. That would help the Arabs and the Israelis a lot too if they got out of the victim psychology, both mm. of them, you know. But uh, it helped a lot to see that and to know that, you know, just these little things sort of kept me going and they kept me from running out in the street screaming you know? mm -hmm. and at the end of the three days all of a sudden it abated it just stopped and after that everything was and so I didn't do anything I just experienced the fear the divine worked on my nervous system so was that the initiation itself being in that dark room for three days or, or, or was that the that preparation was that was and you came out that, that was awakening that was awakening. That was awakening. After that, awakening had been given. You know, uh -huh. uh, I, after that, I no longer experienced myself as a person. I experienced life now as a process. Mm -hmm. It's like there's just this going on. There's talking going on right now. There's hearing going on right now. There's eating going on. Uh, there's not someone who's awakened. Mm -hmm. Just uh, awakening is like a phenomenon that happens to an, uh, a nervous system, and you just go on. That. But thousands of people are getting this. Hundreds of thousands hundreds. are getting this awakening, but you know, many of them are you know at a one or a two when they right. awaken. But the main thing is this, that they get it. So the initiation to be a oneness meditator came before that, actually, before yeah. I was awakened. Yeah, and why are there only 60 or 70 in this huge thing well, of hundreds I, of thousands? I, I, How did I, you qualify I, for that? Well, it's a total mystical thing. There's a group of monks who are in high levels of, of enlightenment mm -hmm. at Oneness University. And the oneness meditators are selected in a totally mystical process. They go into a communion with God, and all the people who are oneness trainers, oneness trainers are those who can teach others to be diksha givers, mm -hmm. to give the, the hands-on blessings. 
And so all the trainers have obviously exhibited a certain amount of commitment and passion. You were Some a trainer. more than others. So I was a trainer. So mm -hmm. that the names of the trainers... Because diction givers are quite n numerous, but... Uh, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands, but then trainers are more exclusive. Yeah. yeah. But then actual oneness meditators are more exclusive still. Is that what you're saying? Well, the trainer, anyone can become a trainer. Okay. Uh, anyone can become a, one, uh, a blessing, a oneness diction giver. Mm -hmm. Anyone can become a trainer. You go right. take a 10-day course in India and you're, you're, you're trained and you're a trainer. Yeah. And, uh, and they don't put you through, you know, a rigorous acceptance mm -hmm. uh, drama. You know, right. It's pretty much everyone who wants to goes, you know. Um, there's no course office in Oneness. Yeah. You know, you know, um, <laughs> so the names of the trainers are read while these people are in this communion. Mm -hmm. They're deep in samadhi. They have to like all, like a minimum of apparently seven, have to hear, yes, this person could hold this energy, could, could do this. So just hearing the name, Eric Eisen, they get a communion, they get a communion from yeah. the divine. I don't know the details of right. how it comes to but them. But some little light goes all, off and they, they think... all have to go around and say, yeah, this one, okay. Mm. you know. Hmm. And that's how the selection is. Hmm. So you got a knock on the door one so, day and so I got, you've been selected? So I was on a course in India mm -hmm. and it was the last day of the course. The next day I was getting on a plane to go home and after the last meeting, one of the guides, we call them dasas, Sanskrit, they're guides, comes up to me after the class and says, be outside your dorm at five in the morning tomorrow, you're going to be initiated as a oneness meditator. Mm -hmm. So I go out at five in the morning, they take me over to the oneness temple, which is a phenomenally powerful temple, um, as many temples in India are. This one's really special, has a really amazing beauty and energy. I went through the initiation, which was a powerful, like a yagya, you know, mm -hmm. whole Vedic ceremony with fires and offerings mm. and things like that, and uh, and then I was given different meditations to do during it while that went on. The experience was of being like reamed out by golden light. Mm. I just felt from that every cell in my body was consumed by golden light and extremely blissful. You know, so it was a tremendous cleansing and opening. And, uh, and giving the oneness meditation is kind of like that. It's like every cell in the body. So when I'm doing it, I, I'm not there. I'm not doing anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I went through it the other night, and um, it was powerful. I mean, I don't usually experience subtle perceptions and all, but I could see a lot of light around you and light coming out of your hands and everything. And I don't usually experience that kind of stuff. And there was definitely a palpable feeling in the room that really deepened profoundly. I thought the music was a little hokey, but, you know, I mean, Alma has music going on all the time, too, while yeah, she's right. doing her thing. I, yeah. I think she just doesn't want it to be completely silent. Yeah. Maybe people fall asleep well, or something. Well, we say uh, that, that music helps to open the heart. So yeah. if you like the music... It keeps you out of the head. You, you may feel it's hokey, but some people like it, and so it, it keeps you out of the head. Where right, you just right. Enjoy, if you can enjoy the music, it helps to keep the mind... The only people I, I've met who don't have any kind of the experiences you're... Def describing with the oneness meditation or even the diksha mm -hmm. are the ones, you know, they may have had too, too, much, in too much coffee or whatever, but there's just too much going on in their head and so they can't right. connect can't settle in. To, uh, to what their, you know, what their senses are experiencing. Yeah. It's a life of the mind and not the senses. When Amma does questions and answers on retreats, you know, at the end of like an hour doing questions and answers, she just sort of stops that and sings a couple simple little bhajans and gets everybody clapping yeah. and everybody comes back out of their heads yeah. down in their hearts. Yeah. Yes, we do. And oneness, we stop and dance. Yeah. They have classes and then they stop, they put on some great music and you get up and dance yeah. and clap. And, just to and get just yourself out of your head. Get, get out of the head. Yeah. You know? huh. And it works. 
you mentioned like hundreds of thousands of people and, and all. What, what's most it like over there? Is it a huge, huge most place? Them, most of them in India. Most of them in Indians. Indians. The, most of those hundreds of thousands who are awakened are Indians? are Indians, and they okay. and they're awakened through the different processes that mm -hmm. are made available to them, and they awaken much more easily than Westerners. You know, they're more in their hearts. They don't have such mm. a dominant mind, and they have the tradition of the divine. Right. So they have a more bhakti. Oneness has a big bhakti component, devotion to the divine, and uh, and we don't say it has to be Amma Bhagavan. It could be Amma, could whoever. be anyone, whoever yeah. it is for you, Jesus, yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. If you have that bhakti component, it makes it easier. Yeah. And so hundreds and hundreds of, of thousands, I don't know the exact quote, every month they release a total of the number of people who are awakened in the world, mm -hmm. and it's not one. Not just that. Not just, just one. Anybody anywhere. It's just anybody anywhere from any tradition, mm -hmm. you know, and it's now, it's grown to well over a million in mm -hmm. less than a year. I heard you mention that the other night, and I was wondering, how do they determine that? Is it just some kind of Uga Booga it's a, cognition it's thing? It's the same thing as the selection of the oneness meditators. Yeah. They, they somehow they go into a state, they yeah, feel they, the pulse of the world or something. It's not that cognitive. It's mm -hmm. like they connect to the divine, and the divine knows, because the divine is everybody. The divine knows how many, and Amma Bhagavan are avatars. You know? mm -hmm. So you can dispute that, oh, no, okay, I'm, this and that, you know, I'm, cool. oh, I'm just talking well, to the, the camera because I <laughs> yeah. get that reaction with, with, with people, yeah. you know. But, I don't think that, but, I mean, I think there could be a number of avatars in the world at any given time. It doesn't have to, right. if you believe in avatars. Yeah, right now, in my awareness, there's at least six that I know of. Mm -hmm. Mother Mira uh, Amaji, Mother Mira Amaji, uh, Karuna Mai, mm -hmm. Saraswati Avatar. Amma Bhagavan. Amma Bhagavan and uh, Anastasia in mm -hmm. Russia. Yeah. You know, and there so, may be more. And there, there may be more. Yeah. And again, an avatar just means the divine has taken birth. I mean, we're all the divine, but ordinarily we, the, the vast majority, forget that they are. And so they have to go through this whole drama yeah. that they're gripped by. But the divine taking birth without forgetting is an avatar. Yeah. Not even, even in, in oneness, we have even a more liberal mm -hmm. definition of that. We, we would say that, like, some great soul takes a mission, and it may not be they may not remember their true nature. For example, Bhagavan likes, to, likes, to, say, likes to say Einstein mm -hmm. was uh, an, an avatar. avatar of science. You know, he changed the whole world. He's, he started flip of science towards where it's coming to, to the same understanding as the spiritual traditions mm -hmm. of the universe. Yeah. Everything's just energy. So he's flipped that switch. So he was an avatar of science for that particular yeah. mission. He was brilliant, you know, because... He was a very high soul. He cognized it. I mean, other it. scientists said, how in the world did he come up with that? Yeah. You know, it was yeah, like yeah, just out of the blue. Yeah. Well, he was a 20-year-old patent, yeah. you know, yeah. attorney, patent clerk. And yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then we say like Mozart, writing symphonies yeah. at eight, yeah. you know. Or, you know, look at the influence the, the great musicians have had. You know, Bach, you know, what mm -hmm. kind of a inspiring, you know, Beethoven, Brahms, yeah. Tchaikovsky, Mozart, you know, many of them, they're... They're coming from Gandharva Loka, celestial realm, and they're tapped into the, the musical, beautiful music. And even, uh, you know, I've never heard Amma Bhagavan say this, but in my opinion, the Beatles wrote phenomenal music, and mm -hmm. they they helped to transform the culture. generation, yeah. the culture. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and they, there was a lot of spiritual content in what they put. You know, they stopped writing boyfriend-girlfriend kind of stuff, yeah. Boyfriend, you know, early on, and got into some pretty profound lyrics. Yeah. And, and so I think that they were kind of avatars, you know. Yeah. They had a profound shift. Mm -hmm. So I would call all of those avatars. For me, it's also an experience. I think there's a difference between your concept 
and your experience. The first time I meditated with Bhagavan, I saw him transform into an infinite field of gold. And in within that gold, I saw Maharshi and Gurudev and Jesus, Saraswati and Durga and Kali and Lakshmi and Ganesh and Shiva and Brahma and, uh, and all the other incarnations of Vishnu, the boar, the lion. Uh, I saw them all within him. I had that experience, okay, this guy's for real, you know. And so again, if you're a cynical person, you could say, you know, that's a fantasy, that's a dream. To me, you know, the level of bliss that accompanied that experience is the proof of its reality. You know, it's the quality of the energy that you can differentiate between a real experience and a fantasy. Well, there's a lot of people these days in contemporary spirituality who they get the idea of non-duality and maybe they even have some degree of experience of it. Uh, but all this other stuff, when you start talking about deities and avatars and boars and, right. and all this stuff, it seems like so much sort of um, fanciful falderal. You know, there's just like kind of like all kinds of... But it's fun. It's a joy. But, you know, they would, they would perhaps say, I'm just speaking devil's advocate, that, well, it's, it's, it can be a distraction. You can just get caught up in all this stuff. But, I mean, I would just counter, not that my experience is rich in this regard, but I would just counter that in my father's house there are many mansions, that there actually are a, a wide range of realms of, of creation and all sorts exactly. of subtle realities, right. which, you know, you can take anything and boil it down to nothingness if you want to do that, but not, as long as we acknowledge that there is a universe, <laughs> then within this universe there are, you know, untold mysteries and dimensions and all That's this right. stuff. Yeah. And it's not necessarily a distraction or a trap to be cognizant of those. It no. can actually be icing on the cake. It can actually be a, a more full appreciation of, the, of, of God's creation. That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for me now, life is like a, a magical mystery tour. Mm-hmm. If I go out and I close my eyes and I touch a tree, mm-hmm. I connect with the being of that tree, and it connects me with the whole earth, and I have phenomenal blessings from that tree. You know, it's like amazing. Mm-hmm. Or if I think of mantra, I was talking to you guys earlier, I think the Kali mantra, mantra, you know, and I remember like years ago I was sort of uh, reading a, about a lot of books about Sri Ramakrishna, you know, who was a tremendous Kali devotee and all that, and, uh, and uh, I really sort of got this intuitive message that you're not ready for me, but lately, uh, you know, if I think the, the, the Kali mantra, I'm just consumed with her love, you know, mm-hmm. and even as I was telling you earlier, her current avatar, Amaji, the hugging saint, um, has appeared to me, you know, and hey, when you think the Kali Mantra, when I think the Kali Mantra, and so I'm like, and and the energy of it is extremely blissful. So you know, I'd rather be enjoying life than suffering. Hmm. So it's a joy, and exactly, and I think what you said is the critical thing. I see this within the oneness movement. You know, I do question and answers after my online oneness meditations, and some people ask these types of questions even in emails. I have this where. They want to take that non-dual point of view, that there's only the field of consciousness and all the rest of this is not real, and, and, uh, you know, and no one gets awakened, and um, there are no, there's no, nobody no, to get awakened. there's nobody to get awakened right. and all that. And I'm saying, you talk to anyone who's awakening, who's had an awakened experience, you know, and I, even the teachers who teach this, Adyashanti teaches that, he'll describe his awakening experience. Francis Lucille, a wonderful uh, non-dual teacher that 
lives near us in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, he teaches this, Temeca. and then you ask him to make You ask him about this, and he'll tell you about his awakening experience. Mm-hmm. So you know the uh, awakening happens. If you want to take that stance, then leave. Get out of your body. You know, <laughs> go 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 back into pure kindness. If you're yeah. in a body. There's this reality, and just that was a, a beautiful way you expressed it. To me, you have to understand that yes, there's nothing but the field, yes, there's nothing but the void, there's nothing but the pure divine energy which has no attributes, no qualities, nothing. Somehow it has manifested this universe, maybe just to have fun. Yeah. Marsh used to say that the whole purpose of it is the expansion of bliss. So that sooner or later, everyone, every part of the manifestation comes back to its true nature of bliss and, the, and, and appreciates the Creator. And joy is somehow expanded even though it can't expand. But so, so the Creator gets to enjoy. It's like if you write a book with a happy ending, you get to enjoy that. And well, you know, Marsh used to say the purpose of creation is the expansion of happiness. Yeah. And think about that. I mean, the purpose of creation, the whole manifestation of the universe, is, expand, is the expansion of happiness. Yeah. Okay. Who's happiness? And how is it expanding? Why does sort of a nothingness explode into somethingness and, and you know, just hydrogen and helium eventually, you know, form stars and, ex- and those explode and we get heavier elements and we eventually get bodies and those right. bodies can start thinking about this stuff and actually begin to experience it. it you know, it's this whole elaborate thing that apparently hasn't happened for nothing. Yeah. And that, you know, it's happened because now the divine can be a living, breathing, eating, crapping reality. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of just, you know, unmanifest oneness. Yeah. Uh, and there seems to be some kind of expansion of happiness in that. Right, yeah. <laughs> I love that you said crapping, because it always reminds me of this uh, story. Of, again, the contrast in, in the TM movement, we were always so... You know, take off your beads before you go to the bathroom. And there's all these sort of Vedic things and everything was like impure. You had to be so careful of all these little different things. And there was this wonderful uh, Kashmiri saint who was actually a good friend of Marsh's, Lakshmanju. Yeah. And I have some good, very dear close friends who are still close friends who were in the TM movement and then they became close disciples of Lakshmanju and they still are devoted to to uh, publishing his work now, mm-hmm. that's what they do. Kashmir Shaivism. Yeah, Kashmir Shaivism, mm-hmm. you know, the main guy lives in LA, John Hughes, and he has like some, uh, some other people who were close friends helping him. So one day, you know, they were going to go to the bathroom, they started taking off their beads, and Lakshmanju <laughs> goes, do you think God is not also in the bathroom? <laughs> right. <laughs> is there somewhere where God is not? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, get over it. <laughs> um, yeah. I love that story. So, uh, so thank you for the crapping analogy. Sure, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you've got a body, and, and like we were saying, you know, it, it, may, it may be nothing but the field, but here we are. So how did we get here? And, you know, you gave a beautiful description. For me, okay, I heard Marshy say this, and I experienced it one time. I was blessed with this experience that when I was in that pure transcendental state with no thought, nothing happening at all. In fact, Ama, the, the, the Ama of the Oneness Movement, gave that to me. She appeared to me and she said, My son, would you like to be me? And I said, Yeah, that would be <laughs> She showed me her true nature. She took me into pure nothingness, the void. There was, there was nothing except bliss, just joy and love, you know, and even that you couldn't name it. In that state, as Marshi said, consciousness became aware of itself. And that 
being aware of itself triggered the whole creation. I saw that, that, that being, like Krishna says, curving back on myself, I create again and again. So there was like a, it was not really happening, but somehow that awareness became aware of itself, and that became a golden sphere. And that golden sphere was the Divine Mother, the Divine Feminine, and she birthed this whole creation. You know, she was like the seed, and out of her came Brahma, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, and, and they manifested through first light. Everything became gold, and then it took different colors, and then the colors interacted with each other, and the Om came out, and it got more and more complex. And then there was, I started seeing the Hiranyagarbha, you know, the golden egg of a creation, spinning like a golden egg. And then out of that sphere, the experience went back to that sphere, and it was like, countless eggs were coming out one after another after you know just countless universes manifesting and so i think that that's all that's happening is the void is becomes aware of itself and wants to expand that nature of love and joy okay um this is great let's let ricky have it too (laughs) let's just take a diversion for a minute and and talk about uh pulse diagnosis okay because you actually make your living doing that, and um, I've done that with you many times, and I think people might find it interesting. You know, you mentioned that this ability somehow was gifted to you when you had an ex- experience of Krishna many, That's many, right. many years ago. That's right. Yeah. And th- that was before the TM movement even talked about Ayurveda. That's right. But yeah. then Ayurveda came along. And yeah. Let's give a demonstration of that, and uh, we obviously don't want to have a lot of dead air, so you know, we're not, we won't take 15 minutes for you to feel my pulse. But we can take a couple of minutes and um, whatever it takes, okay. and you can talk about that, and, and it'd be interesting. So do you do it without touching my wrist? Yeah, I do. Okay. I do most of my work by phone. Or, so you don't need Skype. to touch the person's wrist. I don't wrist need to touch the person. Yeah. Okay. Because it's all happening within consciousness, and so the physical touch doesn't. There's no distance. There's nothing like uh-huh. that, that that happens. How's your is your energy level good? You feel very energetic these days. No, Pretty much. No problem there. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, my work tends to be a little mind-numbing. I'm sitting in front of a computer all day, and yeah. so I get some brain fatigue from that, mm-hmm. which I'm always working on mm-hmm. and re- resolving and dissolving. Uh, but I have a lot of energy. I'm kind of very ambitious and motivated and yeah. mm-hmm. physical energy as well. I mean, I love to hop on my bike and ride 20 miles and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just seeing a little... Uh, it's all right now, but I'm just seeing a little risk to your thyroid at some point. Risk. Risk. It's okay now, but there's a bit of inflammation in the thyroid, mm-hmm. and you know, and if you if you uh, work too hard in your mind, mm-hmm. uh, that disturbs the values, and they start moving pitta up into your thyroid. Mm-hmm. And you also have to be very careful of your diet. If you get toxicity, like right now, your spleen's a little bit inflamed, mm. and uh, because there's something a little toxic, something you ate or something, you know the. The air here in Fairfield can be pretty toxic with pesticides from mm. the farms. So there's something a little toxic in your system, and your spleen has filtered it out. So your spleen's a little toxic right now, and it's it's radiating some toxicity in the lymphatic system. And uh, for some reason, I was seeing both those two angles, just in that quick look, are, are causing some affliction to the thyroid. Hmm. So I would feel, uh, you know, so if I were treating you, I would... Um, you know, maybe as a preventative to take a, a, a natural thyroid supplement, not one of the glandular ones. Right. But there are some very good ones out there that are mainly herbs and vitamins and uh, enzymes, and they help the, the strengthen the thyroid. You know. 
So you not only, and obviously this is a really quick little thing, you usually go much more deeply into it and yeah, spend an hour with people I and do, stuff. Yeah. And, but you not only sort of tell them things like that, but you actually recommend particular herbs. Yeah, I recommend things. supplements and also mm -hmm. uh, dietary points. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, oh yeah, they're stand. Yeah, those are good products. Too, mm -hmm. Yeah, that one's okay. Yeah, well, I'd have to check it. The way I prescribe things is I just by the name. If I think the name and I look at the person, the thyroid would show me how it would respond. So let's just see. Yeah, that would do. That's needed. What's needed for you? I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's the best. Usually, I compare three or four products, and 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 his body would tell me which one it liked best. But it, this one does what's needed for him. Mm. That would be good. Okay. I mean, Irene's mentioned my thyroid a number of times, thinking that maybe I've got something going it's on. That's some of the symptoms. Yeah. Like yeah. You yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Eyebrows. Yeah, like I have very little eyebrows left. That's supposed to be a symptom of, of thyroid. That's probably why I thought your head was getting bigger. <laughs> 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 yeah. Anyway, I wanted to give people a taste of that, um, just because it's an interesting thing that you do and have been doing for a long time, and um, that too could be brushed off as some kind of imaginary thing. But I've seen you, you know, go into quite some detail and different for every person. And so yeah. on. you used to do it by feeling the wrist, and now you just do it. Yeah. And you're not the first or only person to be able to do something like this. We knew this guy There's in India, right, there, yeah. Dr. Triguna. Yeah, he was, um, he was, was way beyond me. God, he, I mean, he yeah. was remarkable. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, he, he, he just looked at you, and he knew everything about you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he could even foresee the future, um, which he did a couple of times with me. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then he would take your pulse like this. He would just tap it, boom, like that. Yeah, and, and he once said, I'm only doing that. I, I just look at you, and I know everything. And I just tap you to bless you. Uh -huh. So he touches you to bless you. But, yeah. So, you know, he's my hero. He was like, <laughs> to me, he's like a, a god. He was like the most amazing Ayurvedic doctor on, on, of this generation. Yeah. You know? He just died a year or so ago. But yeah, at age, what, 93? Something, something like that, that yeah. yeah. But it's, it's, you know, again, I, I have a certain kind of um, reaction or opposite, not opposition, I don't know the word, to this sort of plain vanilla form of spirituality where people feel like, it's all just nothingness. It's all just emptiness. And, you know, I, I always like to kind of point out that there are all these rich expressions and variations yeah, true, yeah. And, and abilities and, and whatnot, and that that's not a problem. It's not a conflict. Yeah. It's, it's just a kind of a... I mean, look at Christ, for example. You know, he was running around healing people and casting out devils yeah, and doing right, all this yeah. stuff. He wasn't just saying that it's all nothingness, nothing is real. Yeah, exactly, you, know? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no you to cast out devils yeah. from. He was casting them out, <laughs> healing people. And do it. So, you know, spirituality in its full blossoming is a much more complete package than just the unmanifest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, because uh, what we were talking about before was... Um, you know, when I was talking about the, the health, the nadis, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, how do you get from this pure feel? Okay, we all accept it. Okay, there's the void. It's there. There's nothing but the, but the unity, the oneness like that. But, okay, here we are, you know. Right. So how do you get from there to there? You, you know, it doesn't just jump. From within. It goes through many, many layers, which, are, which start out as very celestial and beautiful, mm -hmm. and then... Uh, and eventually get to this material earth. Layers of manifestation. Layers of manifestation. Mm -hmm. So as you evolve spiritually, you can start tapping into more and more of these deeper levels. You can be seeing gods, experiencing their blessings. 
you can be, you know, having all kinds of magical, mystery, you know, mystical experiences. And, you know, what are you going to say? Like the, um, you know, Therese Newman, who's like sitting there, like, you know, bleeding the wounds of Christ, that it's not happening, it's all unreal, <laughs> you know. You know, hey, she's bleeding, you know, she, and she's experiencing uh, the, the crucifixion. I mean, I think it can be a distraction for people if they haven't, if they're not capturing the Ford, if, yeah. if there's not right. sort of the uh, intention or orientation to yeah. establish the deepest level of awareness. Right. Uh, you can get hung up in all sorts of new age right. entertainments. Right. Right. Uh, but, you know, once that deepest value of, of pure being is established, right. then a lot of this other stuff gets added on yeah. to thee. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, or Krishna says, uh, know that by which all else is known. Mm-hmm. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all well, else is added unto thee. Unto, unto thee. You know, our, one time Marshi was, a, there was a, a statement which is very widely mistranslated and confused in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, where most of, a lot of the translations talk about the cities or the supernormal powers mm-hmm. as being obstacles to awakening. Right. And Marshi said, it's a mistranslation. He said they're subservient to awakening, mm-hmm. not obstacles. So it's a misunderstanding and mistranslation, which means they come out after you awaken. Right. Now, it's also true, and we you see it. I, I've seen it. You know, I've, I live in California, and, and uh, I, I see it all the time, where people develop an ability, or it's given to them, and they get lost in it, mm-hmm. and, and they don't awaken. Right. Um, there was this guy who was connected with a movement. I think he's been here a bunch of times, and pretty nasty behavior, and yet he's like a powerful healer. Hmm. Some Indian guy. I can't remember his name. Probably uh, shouldn't say the name. I don't there, remember. But, you know, um, but he's you know he's been around the country, and uh, you know he doesn't exhibit, shall we say, a very noble behavioral pattern. At the same time, you know, people get some powerful healings from him. Yeah. So those abilities can be there. It's a matter of whether you get overly caught up in them, or you identify them as something that's you, and you identify them personally, and then you stay stuck in your idea of being a person. Mm. Whereas awakening is all about, you're not a person anymore, and that's not a concept. When you live that reality, it's not like you go along and you say, I'm not a person, you know, there's no more <laughs> Eric, you know, whatever. You're just experiencing, there's no like inner dialogue, you're not you know, things don't stick to you anymore. You're mm-hmm. just, you're just in a process. You're just the divine talking and seeing. You know, you don't experience that. It's just happening. Sure. Everything becomes like it's happening automatically, and so you're not like torturing yourself with thought and analysis. You know, you figure out what you need to do. You know, you think things through and all that. But you know, it's just, it's just thinking is happening. Like Bhagavan's teaching is, there's thinking but no thinker. Yeah. This thing you said about you're not a person, could you put it this way? Could you say the range of your experience has expanded to incorporate you know, multiple dimensions or multiple realities, uh, the most fundamental of which is you're the divine, you're pure being, which is not a person. Yeah. But you know, it also incorporates your personhood. You know, That's right. On a certain level, you're a person. If I pinch your arm, you, know, yeah, yeah. you, you feel that. It's not like the lamp feels it. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a localization. Let me feel it. <laughs> and so you're kind of simultaneously localized and unbounded. That's right. You know, pinpoint awareness and comprehensive awareness. Yeah, yeah. The difference is the kind of inner dialogue and the whole domination by the mind. Right. You're declutched from the mind. It's the mind that's spending these huge amounts of energy trying to define this Erichhood. 
of who this so, Eric, but until so someone is, insults yeah. this Eric, and so right. so that the mind is hurt because it's like has this illusion that there's this being there. Whereas you know when that's gone, someone says some something hurtful, it blows through you. Mm-hmm. You know because just to use that example, but you know some pain. You know it's life. Hey, this is the world. Painful things are going to happen, but it blows through you. You know. Well, maybe this is a good way. No, there's no one that gets stuck on it. Or no one's relating to it. Yeah. But it's just, it's automatic. It's automatic. It's not like I identify. That you have to. I'm not identifying with my thought process. Mm. You know, I don't take credit. Some great thought comes up. You know, go to this place, be there at the right time, and you get there, and you go, where did that thought come from? But it turned out to be exactly the right place at the right time, and Mm -hmm. some little miracle happens in your life. Well, this, I think you just gave us a, another clue for understanding what this declutching means, which is that if you're aware of yourself only as a person, as an isolated individual, then you can't help but be clutched. You, know, you can't help but be attached, gripped, influenced, tossed about by every circumstance. If, you know, and you use the wave-ocean analogy, you're only the wave, okay, then you're, the wind can blow you apart and other waves are crashing into you and all that stuff. But if you kind of become aware of your oceanhood, then fine, my oceanhood contains my wavehood, yeah. but that's just such a small aspect yeah. of it that nothing can, you know, yeah. nothing that can happen to the wave can actually right. influence or yeah. affect the ocean. But I want to emphasize the experiential aspect of that as opposed to conceptual. Well, we're talking, though, so you have to conceptualize. Yeah, we have to concepts. I know, but I just want to clarify that you're not going along with any thought of your oceanhood. Right, right, right. You just are that. Yeah. You are that without, you know, you are your true nature. And then the thoughts, the waves come and go, and they go, and you don't take credit or ownership of anything. And that's just an automatic experience. That's what people get hung up on. It's like, okay, I'm an ocean. Yeah, they try. They hear that, and then they try, they try to do to, it. Try right? to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's you know? not something you do. Yeah, no. It has it's to be something you are. Something you are. It is. And you know, in oneness, we say it has to be given to you by the divine, by the grace. Mm-hmm. The grace has to give that to you. Hmm. You know, whether it's happening to you through a meditation, you know, a meditation or a, a breathing exercise, you know, the divine could do it for you anyway. And it has done it through all these kinds of things, you know. It's all kinds of bizarre ways people have gotten awakened, you know. Yeah. I interviewed one guy who was crossing a parking lot in Boston, and a car almost hit him and screeched to a stop. And the shock of that awakened him, and he never slipped back. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's uh, Harold Percival, who wrote Thinking and Destiny. Mm -hmm. He was walking across the street in New York, York, and the bus fumes... Some bus gave him a blast of exhaust, huh. and he awakened. You know, Interesting. and he wrote this incredible book, Thinking and Destiny. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, he awakened. He never went back. Huh. So it's just the trigger, what it takes. You know, that moment awakening was going to happen to that mind-body complex. That's all awakening happens. But anyway, the point you're making is that what we're talking about here is totally experiential. It's not conceptual. Yeah. We need concepts to talk about it, to write books about it, yeah. but it's an experience that's being referred to, and so don't um, settle for the concepts. Yeah, that's, that's the key. Yeah, yeah, that's the key. The more you stay in the concept, you're not going to awaken you know, when you stay in concepts. That's the bondage. 
And a lot of people do that, unfortunately. I mean, I don't know how, how much you run into it, but there's a tendency these days for people to, you know, listen to this stuff and read a few books yeah. and g get the concept clear because it's easy to intuit yeah. that because yeah. that's the reality. Yeah. But then to to assume that that's all they're they're talking about is yeah. this conceptual understanding of oneness. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, to me, you know, there's a plus and a minus to everything. I think I'm again, I'm eternally grateful for everything Marsha gave me and for the knowledge she gave me and. I think a lot of what he was gifting to people was energy of, of, of his vibration when he was giving these long talks with his beautiful knowledge. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you can't control what's going to happen. And I think for many people, they got lost in the concepts. It's still, even though it's pure knowledge, it's still knowledge. It's, it's something you have to go beyond to awaken. Okay, you know, I just don't want to start saying negative things about Marcia the movement. But I just feel that a lot of people have had such an uh, incredible grounding in true knowledge that they can talk the talk and not walk the walk. Mm. That they're not living the teaching because they're in the conceptual framework. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that needs desperately to happen in many of these movements uh, where the Phenomenal teachers gave phenomenal knowledge and techniques. You know, I live in the heart of SRF land in California, where SRF has major headquarters, and I'm finding that's true of a lot of the SRF people. Mm -hmm. You know, very powerful movements and and phenomenal teachers, and uh, and they're able to give beautiful talks, but they're not living the awakening. Yeah. Just really struck me when I got to India the first time. I walked into the first classroom and. The guys were there leading the first class, and you know, it just was immediately apparent of how beautiful they were. And I, and I just immediately said, you know, these people are, you know, walking the walk. They are living what they speak. They're talking from their experience, not from concepts they've learned from someone. You have to make that leap into your experience. That happens, you know, with awakening. And, and again, there's just something potent about this whole Amabhagavan thing that is triggering these awakenings and that it's ma that's making it experiential for these people. There's just some, some phenomenon going on, some energy. Yeah, we call it the oneness phenomenon. Yeah, okay. It's, it's a phenomenon. Yeah, and you know, we, use that word. Yeah, yeah, that's what we call it. It's the yeah. oneness phenomenon. It's just, it's just grace. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just the divine. Grace, the, divine. the divine has created this channel through which grace can flow. That's right, yeah. yeah. Just like the Divine has created the, the channel of Amici, mm -hmm. Karuna Mai, and Mother Mira, and uh, Anastasia, and you know, they all have their, yeah. their missions, and who knows how many others. You know, these days, again, I live in Southern California, there's a, a new amazing guru appearing in our every, every week. week or two, you know, <laughs> and you know, there's, there's a healer and a mystic, at least two or three on every block. You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's an amazing time we live in. You know, like Marshy said, you know, the golden age, the age of enlightenment is coming. There's nothing anybody can do to stop it. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. The divine has taken that intent. And so the divine is using many, many channels because people are so different. You know, it has to take one channel is not going to be conducive for some people and it is for others. So yeah. it's working through all these different means. That's another thing I love about Bhagavan. That's what he says. He doesn't say, I'm the only we're way. the only way, this is the best way, you know, yeah. or, or stop doing what you're doing and just do this, you know. Mm -hmm. Keep meditating, keep doing your program, keep doing your yoga, keep doing your breathing, whatever. whatever keep do. doing your kriyas, you know. Keep standing on your head, fine, you know. <laughs> just connect to the grace, yeah. you know. 
if we look around us at the world, at the universe, God is obviously not a one-trick pony, you know, it's not, That's right, not, yeah. not a fundamentalist. Yeah. And, you know, just uh, yeah. every little iota of creation is bursting with creativity. Yeah. 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 So it stands to reason that spirituality is going to dawn in multifarious expressions. That's right, yeah, it's just going to explode, you know. Right, right. now, I think, you know, this. Uh, it's a, I think it's happening. I think mm -hmm. we're in a tsunami of awakening. Yeah. I don't know the numbers through oneness, I just know that they, they announce every month how many people are awakened in the world, and it's happening at around 4,000 a day all over the world through whatever systems people are doing. You mentioned that, you know, awakening could be 1 to 100, enlightenment is at 70. I just want to dig into that a little bit more, and a person could awaken at 1, 2, 5, 10, 15. I mean, you mentioned in your talk the other night that a lot of people are coming from China now to the Oneness yeah, University yeah. because they don't masses. have a lot of spirituality yeah, opportunities. They have, to, they have to put in a quota at Oneness University, otherwise they'd be all Chinese, there'd be no room for anybody else. <laughs> How many does the place accommodate? You know, they have that Indian, Indian component yeah. of, of... If there's a square inch of space, put a body there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, the uh, biggest course so far has been about 1,200, okay. but that's on two campuses, yeah. only on two campuses. They have another six or seven campuses, some of which are just for Indians. Mm -hmm. There's one campus, which is like the original one, which is pretty rough, mm. and the Russians take it over every okay. month. And it's like filled with like, you know, about a thousand Russians, and it's like huts with thatched roofs uh -huh. and a fan, you know, no screens, uh, dirt floor, mosquitoes, and, uh, and you have to go out to, uh, you know, they, they have, they have, no, it's not a latrine, it's uh -huh. a real bathroom uh -huh. with a toilet, but it's outside, you know, yeah. for your shower and your toilet. And everything, you know, there's no running water in your hut. Well, at least it's not Siberia. So, yeah. But in any case, um, I'm, a lot of mango trees. I'm kind of interested in uh, this thing about you know people awakening at various stages of development. Yeah. So theoretically, you could have somebody who's a 60, let's say, who's not awakened by this. That's right. Yeah. In contrast to somebody who's a five. Who is awakened? That's right. Yeah. And so the sixty might be somebody who might stand out in society as a kind of a great leader, saint, yeah. or business person, you know, everything, whatever. Dynamic, creative person, musician, musician or something. Yeah. Whereas the five who's awakened might be completely nondescript and and not really making much of an impact. Exactly, beautiful. But That's they've right. got this sort of inner freedom. Right. Yeah. Okay. They're growing. They're, yeah. they're growing more rapidly than the sixty. But the sixty is in the realm of of God consciousness, according to Bhagavan. So. Mm -hmm. You know, if we accept again, that I don't know that. You know, but and what his quickly? What is his? Um, and we're not in a rush, but what is the um, the roadmap of states of consciousness? So, like, you he know, Marsh had like, a roadmap. That yeah, he doesn't lay it out. I spend a lot of I've spent time guessing. Okay. You know, trying to merge Marsh's Marsh's roadmap, uh -huh. which I consider like Marshy did. Everything he did was, was like a system. Put a system right, right there. And kind of one size fits all, and that has its pros and cons. Mm -hmm. But you know, that was his mission. He had his, he knew his mission, and he knew what he wanted to gift. You know, he had cosmic consciousness, God and, consciousness, uh, unity, God consciousness, consciousness unity consciousness, consciousness, Brahman consciousness. Right. So, uh, as far as I've been able to speculate and talk with other people about, cosmic consciousness happens around thirty. Mm -hmm. You know, but again, even that, is, people are unique. It can be thirty, forty. God consciousness around the 50, 60. And maybe. by the way, cosmic consciousness would mean pure consciousness established 24-7. Yeah. You know, along with waking, dreaming, and sleeping. That's right. God consciousness would mean pure consciousness still there, but refined perception. Refined perception. You're experiencing on these realms we've been talking about, mm -hmm. these subtle, more subtle realms of the creation. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe Everything. around 60-ish. That's right. Yeah, 50, 60. Mm-hmm. 
and 70 is supposed to be unity, which is the only level that Bhagavan will accept as enlightenment. Okay. It's unity. And then Brahman, you're getting up to like 90. 90, 100. And the di- distinction between what is unity, what is Brahman? I haven't heard um, Bhagavan define that, so I would go back to Marshi's definition of mm-hmm. that. The distinguish, you may be aware of that already, that distinguishing is in, is in fields of perception. Mm-hmm. Unity consciousness Whatever is my primary focus, if I'm looking at the camera, I experience the camera as myself. There's no separation. That's me. I am the camera. I am Ricky. I am the dog. Yeah. Is that your experience, by the way? Yeah, woof, woof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got some food for you. you know, yeah, yeah. You're going to love it. <laughs> no, I'm not at unity. Whereas Brahman is... Where, where the secondary, first the secondary and then the tertiary, it comes gradually. Mm-hmm. So first the secondary level of perception. So I'm looking at the camera, but I'm also aware Ricky is here. Mm-hmm. And I'm also experiencing Ricky as myself. Third level is a lamp in the corner like that. Or there's something outside the window. And so I experience that as myself. So Brahman is when every level of awareness is experienced as the self. Mm-hmm. So you're completely identified with, with, with Brahman, with the total, the total field, mm. and every manifestation of it is experienced. It's not a concept. It's experienced as the totality that you are. The lamp is me, mm-hmm. because everything is me, but who am I? I am just the field. Right. So you become completely identified with, with Brahman. That's how uh, Maharshi defined it. Okay. And uh, I haven't heard Bhagavan go into any detail on that particular question. <laughs> Because uh, not enough people are ready for it. I get flack for talking about levels a lot, you know, but um, I think this is just what we mean by levels, is that there are degrees of awakening. There's an, it's not an on-off, black-white situation. That's right. There's a kind of a progressive, constant unfoldment. Yes. And whether there's ever any termination to yeah. that unfoldment, I don't know, but uh, there seems to be no, said no. no, degree, no end to the degree of refinement. Yeah. And again, it doesn't mean that the totality itself or the unmanifest itself, that changes in any way or gets improved upon or more shiny or something. It just means that the instrument through which that is lived yeah. has infinite range of possibilities for And enjoyment. Yeah. The key thing is not to suffer anymore, mm-hmm. and not to inflict your suffering on anyone else and yeah. create problems. You know, if we're going to have a, an ideal world, everyone has to be ideal. Is there much talk in the oneness movement of you know, the concept of body as instrument through which this is lived? Is that, is yeah. that a kind of an emphasis? Yeah. Yeah. It's not a huge emphasis, but mm-hmm. it's like a big emphasis in oneness is, is awakening, is just awakening De- yeah. and then just declutch the mind and then grow. And we say, like, awakening is not a destination, it's a process. It's kind of like a milestone in which... Which allows you to grow, yeah. and to stop suffering. allows you to stop suffering and to grow from wherever you wake up, you start to really take off. And that's a joy, you know. I mean, the, the feeling that you're growing really a powerful joy. So is there a lot of guidance and uh, programs for people who have awakened by that definition of declutching? I mean, there must be a lot for the people who haven't to get them yeah, to that point. But the, once when they've gotten to focus. that point, then is there a whole program for those people? The first one is coming uh, this year, this November, mm-hmm. December, from, and uh, I'm going to that. You know, mm-hmm. so it's the first. That, you know, it's enough demand. And oh my yeah. God, yeah. I say they're expecting 1,500 people on the campus. It's going to yeah. be really crowded. Mm. But um, that's India. They do it. Oh yeah, they, they squeeze them in. Ama's place gets like 20,000 sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's huge. They have this meeting in the Oneness Temple every Sunday where they bring in all the the most 
passionate devotees from each province. So they mm -hmm. bus in one province at a time each Sunday, and they get a special, powerful darshan and blessing from Bhagavan, and also the highest group of monks that are in like this mm -hmm. ecstatic samadhi state all the time. And then the, the Westerners who were there on the course get to go too. So they, they put up like these barriers. They let the Westerners in and they, they fence you off. Mm -hmm. And then they open the doors. And Indians mob and, in. And, and these like 8,000 Indians in one room, <laughs> plus the Westerners, you know. Yeah. And uh, it's, like, it's tremendous, all in one room. Uh. You know, it's, it's the largest pillarless hall in Asia. Wow. This top floor of the, of the Oneness Temple. Mm. And so, you know, they can get about 8,000 Indian style in there. Oh, it's a top floor. I hope it never collapses. Yeah, it's beautifully built. It's mm. built according to, uh, they, they say, you know, um, that it's an exact replica of uh, a temple in Satyavoka, mm. the, the highest heaven, Interesting. the temple of Vishnu. So it's, the architecture is, is pretty amazing, built to support that. So that's th three floors. Like the Indian Express. Yeah. <laughs> out of five. <laughs> is there anything we haven't covered that you feel is important? I think we've emphasized everything. To me, um, you know, I spent my whole life looking for awakening and it's finally been given to me and, and I just feel it's the most important priority in life is to end your suffering and to start growing like gank, like crazy. Mm. It's a joy to feel that you're changing, that you're evolving rapidly, that you're not stuck somewhere. Mm -hmm. That makes you really enjoy life. So wherever you awaken, start to enjoy. Get your awakening. Do what you have to do. And I think that's actually an interesting measure of um, evolution. The fact uh, of, that evolution is taking place, you can tell because there's joy. There's you know, kind of ongoing, you, you, know, you feel happy, things are going well and so on. Whereas if you're stuck, it's like nature's way of telling you you're not evolving. That's you know, right, you've got yeah. to do something. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's going back to the, the highest philosophical knowledge, which is, you know, going back to the void. None of this is real. Okay, it is all just the, the divine being aware of itself. Mm -hmm. And so the, it, it can't stay static because it's not real. So nothing can last. So the only thing that's permanent is awakening when you're identified with your true nature. And then everything else is just going on. Everything else is just processing. Mm. and you're growing and evolving and you're not stuck but when people are like trying to hold on to their money or their possessions or, or you know they're say you know i just want to have security you know it's not going to happen you just you can't hold on everything is constantly shifting and so when you can be in that flow you enjoy life the minute you try to stop it you're in trouble you're seeking security in that which is inherently insecure yeah something with changes yeah that's right yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this has given people a taste. Um, yeah, that was that's been fun. Yeah, yeah. taste of Eisen, the Eisen world. Yes, yeah. uh, Eric does these pulse diagnosis things. That's how he supports himself. He doesn't support himself through the oneness thing. No, right? we don't take money. We don't for take money for things, that. Yeah. You know, if that intrigues you, he has a website which I'll be linking to where you can find out all about that. But then, of course, there's the oneness thing. We've talked a lot about that. And uh, you have a website where you do these oneness meditations online. Yeah, it's not and a website. It's a, it's it's a, a live, live stream, stream account. Yeah. yeah, so people can actually participate in those if they wish. And you, you do that's questions free. and yeah. answers. And yeah, that's It's free. also free. I've listened to some of those question and answer sessions. Those are nice. I'll link on Eric's page on BatGap. I'll link to a number of things that he wants me to link to so you can get in touch with him or find out more about all these 
So thanks. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. it's great, great to, to hang with you again. Yeah. Ricky and I have been through a few wars together. Yeah. Chicago, Detroit. Oh my God. Fortunately, we were on the same army. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were in at war with each other. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Eric's put up with all kinds of all kinds of things I've been through with great patience. Likewise. Yeah, and likewise. <laughs> we're both we're all bozos on this bus. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let me make my usual wrap up points. I've you know been talking with my friend Eric Eisen, and this interview has been one in an ongoing series. There are 180 something of them now. You can find them all at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, where there's both an alphabetical and a chronological index of all the interviews. I'm also thinking of trying to figure out a way of, uh, people have requested this, I'm always getting asked, well, what are your favorite ones? And I'm thinking of doing some kind of voting system where people can send in their votes for what their favorite ones are, and we'll keep tallying those and updating yeah. it. So there will be a page where you can yeah. see the top 20 as, yeah. as measured by the audience. In any case, there at BatGap, you'll find all those other interviews. There's a discussion group that springs up around each interview. You can participate in that. There is a link to the audio podcast, because a lot of people don't like to just sit in front of the computer and watch things like this. They'll listen while they drive or whatever. There's a donate button, which I depend upon people clicking on now and then to support all the expenses involved in this. You have some nice new equipment. Yeah, I do. I have a camera here. He has a mixer. And a mixer. Like sound mixer. <laughs> I actually got the mixer for free with Amazon credits. Oh, yeah, because, I do that too. I have their credit card. Yeah, I, well, I link to people's books that they publish, you see. And so if you click on a book link in, in BatGap, or, and like let's say you want to buy a, uh, an airplane, Click on a link in BatGap first. It'll take you to Amazon. Then I'll get an affiliate credit for that airplane. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's really yeah. good. And then I can get little things like this. One more little thing. There's a sign-up list there where you can be notified by email every time a new interview is posted. So uh, feel free to sign up and you'll just get one email a week or so when a new interview is posted. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Next week for me is a few minutes from now when I'm going to interview Michael James over in the UK. He's an expert on Ramana Maharshi and has written a 500-page book about him, which is really rich and full of wisdom. So thanks. Thank you. Yeah, Ramana Maharshi is big in the wellness movement, too. They quote him all the time. He's highly regarded. He's considered to be 95 on the scale of up to 100. Cool. I'll leave that in the interview. Namaste, everybody. Namaste.